Congo, Congo. Go Zongia, go Zongia, go Zongia, nida so, go Zongia. My sources tell me you were out yesterday. Uh, I had a little, a little wander around the neighbourhood. That's true. On rollerblades. Yeah, it turns out I've had them in a cupboard for the last twelve years or so. So I took them out. Good man. <laughs> yeah. And how so, did that go? Well, I didn't break anything, so that, that, that's a positive. I to stay out of hospital. Absolutely. <laughs> 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 Oh dear! <laughs> so, Perfect. I thought you Skype for a very long time, so this is, this is yeah. pretty cool. Yeah, yeah it takes some get used to. Mm. Yeah, it seems to work alright. Video calls constantly for the last three weeks or so, so just all different platforms for different people as well. Really? Well, for work as well? Well, for work it's kind of the same across the board, but then catching up with my, my family and my friends and so on. Everyone's got their own tastes, I guess. Yeah, of course, a lot of people end up on a platform for a given way, but whatever works is an important thing, isn't it? Exactly, yeah, absolutely. So uh, let, let's welcome you, Ali, then to the the, the podcast. So Ali Roberts, um, you're going to join us. I'm just going to give you a little bit of a big up and then we'll sort of build it from there. I read, I read uh, there was a reviewer who said about the band um, Heaven Asunder, they said they were the biggest thing to come out of Bristol since Banksy, Isambard Kingdom, Brunel, and they threatened massive, massive attacks. Crown as the biggest musical success from Bristol. <laughs> oh dear, I don't remember that specifically, but uh, it's been a few years ago. <laughs> That's good. So, um, so I'm David Turner, joined today by Darren Parr, and this is. Baz and Dave's Conversation in Music, um, episode four. So welcome, Ali. Thank you very much. It's good to be here. We should be getting good at these now, really, four in, shouldn't we? Should we? Yeah, maybe. (laughs) We're getting there. Um, Normally what we cover off at this part is the the parish notices or the admin, but I don't know if you've got anything that you're aware of that we need to, to cover off, Darren? No, not particularly. Just some really good. We had some good feedback from the last uh, podcast that we did last weekend. Um, it's just really to say that we are on Spotify now as well. So find our Facebook page, search for Daz and Dave. Daz with two Z's, two Z's, I should say. Not American, are we? That's my kids watching too much American TV. Uh, so Daz and Dave Facebook page and on Spotify. That's about it. Thank you, David. Brilliant. Thank you. Um, Ali, obviously we're having this conversation because I'm aware of your uh, your your music abilities and uh, interest in bands, but also you've messaged me quite recently with some really interesting recommendations of, of bands who nowhere near my radar, um, which was great. And <laughs> and I thought that'd be a good chance then, like, 
as we're all locked in. Um, good chance to catch up. And why don't we start with with yourself and music, and maybe where you how you discovered music? Was it played around the house? Where where did that enter into your life? Well, um, it was fairly late, I think, compared to a lot of my contemporaries. Certainly, everyone I was in the band with had an affinity for music much younger than I did. Um, in terms of music in the house. Um, there was my mum liked Bay City Rollers, and <laughs> and my dad basically had the uh, greatest hits for Queen and Eagles, and uh, I remember a, a funk compilation CD that was that was in the mm. house, and that was about it really. Oh. So um, I loved Queen and and Eagles, um, and then. I think the, the reason I got into actually performing music was I, I went to a Catholic school right. and um, of course there's lots of singing of hymns in mass and I remember I was a bit of a uh, mischievous, mischievous kid. Right, really? And my teacher, <laughs> yeah, doesn't really come across <laughs> in my later life choices. Sure. Um, but I do recall my teacher taking me aside for misbehaving in church and making me sit next to her and then she kind of noticed that um, when when there was hymns being sung, I kind of was more engaged with what was going on around me. So she suggested to my parents to kind of promote that to me. And then I, that's when I started doing um, like a sort of drama school on mm-hmm. the weekends. So I do every Sunday, it was uh, drama singing and like acting, singing and dancing. And I did that for about five or six years. Um, which led me into all sorts of things. I, I had um, like really minor roles on television and I did loads of musicals. And from there, I just kind of developed my skills as a performer and right. mainly as a vocalist, to be honest. And then I decided when I was a teenager that that's what I wanted to go do. Brilliant. So would we remember you being on anything as an actor? Um, you, wouldn't, you probably wouldn't be able to catch me, but I did have an episode of Casualty, Back in the noughties. Uh, uh, victim? Were you a victim? I was just an extra at Bonfire oh, Night. Um, <laughs> but um, that, that was a lot of fun. That was uh, that was shot in Bristol before I lived in Bristol. Oh, right. So it was quite the adventure. And because of the sort of time frame of filming, um, it was set at Bonfire Night, but they had to film it in the middle of the summer. So it was we had to go down in the middle of the night. And for me, it, like sort of 12 years old, getting a day off school and getting to go to Bristol in the middle of the night and get paid £40 for wow. standing around yeah, playing nice. the fun fair. It was, it was the best day ever, to be honest. Brilliant. What a great setup. Great setup. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I still um, dabble in the old musical. I've never quite got out of that phase, to be honest. But dabble? To the half and the time, but yeah. Twi- <laughs> twice, <laughs> twice a year. And on yeah, Sundays. Yeah. <laughs> I've not been in casualty. Uh, I think that's my, my widest platform that I've ever been on. Yeah. Uh, and that, that was kind of, that was my only television sort of performance. Um, I mean, I, I think I was more engaged with the musical theatre aspect of it. And it's, it's kind of peculiar to some of my friends because I never really enjoyed watching musical theatre. I, I tend to get frustrated when they labor the point with a song um, <laughs> i just want to see the plot move on but 
I really enjoyed performing them. Um, I think my favorite performance was in high school, we did a rendition of Les Mis, um, and I played Javert, and I'd never seen it, I'd never read about it, I, I didn't know anything about it, but was um, after doing the auditions and getting the part, no idea what that meant, and all my friends were kind of congratulating me on getting the part of Javert, wow. and um, I just I was like, oh, is that like, uh, is that the main character? And they're like, no, not exactly, <laughs> but I think you'll like it. <laughs> Bet you did it better than Russell Crowe as well. Um, I would go out on the limb and say yes, I did. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Brilliant. So, how did how did that then translate, or how did you progress then from musical theatre? Don't know if it's an age thing. Going to college, uni. That you, so you must have gone through some, picked up some music then, and as you weren't so hooked onto the musicals. Well, yeah, there was a, a, a real defining event. Um, I think I'm lucky that I can think back to a specific um, circumstance that led to me going into more of a band right. kind of scenario. Um, and that was a, a band was touring and they came through Cheltenham and they needed lots of uh, Amdram children to come and oh. be part of their show. Um, and so they came to the drama school that I was a part of and they said, we need X amount of children and um, we also need two male children, one sort of younger male, one uh, slightly older, to play sort of main parts within the stage show. And I, I thought it was a bit, you know, blasé for a rock band to to have this rock opera as, as we know it now. Um, but turns out the, the band was called Think Floyd and they were a huge, huge touring tribute act to Pink Floyd, mm. who at the time I'd never heard of. I was about 11 or 12 years old. Um, and I was chosen to be the role of young Pink. So if you're familiar with the story mm. of The Wall, um, I acted out all the scenes for like comfortably, comfortably numb and such on stage. And oh. there's, there's a moment at the end of The Wall where uh, at the trial, where both sort of adult and younger Pink are on stage and um, they tear down the wall on stage and they had the whole cast chanting hammer. And I just thought it was the most metal thing <laughs> ever. Like with the, with the sort of that droning guitar lip underneath it. And like, it was just chaos. And I remember thinking that was the coolest thing I'd ever witnessed. And after that, I then wanted to find out more about this band. And then it led me down a rabbit hole that I'm still exploring now, to be honest. Fantastic. Yeah, so oh. I remember asking my dad, I said, who is who is Pink Floyd? He was like, oh, some rock band from the 70s. And I was like, oh, they sound lame. <laughs> <laughs> and then, yeah, from, since then, they've just been uh, enduringly one of my favourite um, acts. Yeah, okay. I didn't know we were going to get there. That sounds great. Yeah. Well, I guess that brings us on to your favourite acts, maybe. I think that's <laughs> a good little segue there. What yeah, are the sort of things is it you like to listen to? Um, I, I've got, like, a really diverse... Um, sort of range of music I don't think there's many types of music that I don't enjoy I think the only things that I would disregard would be anything with like a bad ethos I think like there's certain um, at least subgenres of like for instance heavy metal where I wouldn't agree with the All right. the attitude the, misogyn the misogyny yeah. yes yeah exactly or, or sort of um, anti-Semitic views or just right. any anything okay. kind of divisive I think uh, I, I could get on board with and it's I think that's the same with any kind of overall genres I mean 
the, the key things that I stick to are rock and metal and a lot of prog. Um, but I, uh, I grew up in an interesting time where um, uh, I think, importantly, the, the first CD I bought was Hybrid Theory by Linkin Park. Right. Um, and that's the first one I bought for myself because all of my, like everyone in my school had it. And um, I was like, I had to get it. And luckily enough, I loved it. I still love it to this day because it was, it was a modernized version of the metal that I was yeah. listening to. I had like some compilations with Van Halen and Black Sabbath and such on it. But as far as I was aware, at sort of 13, 14 years old, um, there was just a gulf between the 80s nirvana happened and then there was nothing um, so it was really nice to see that there was bands releasing this stuff in like 2000 2001 and all my friends loved it but for very different reasons a lot of them enjoyed the hip-hop aspects right because um, there's a lot of it was just a mishmash of both subcultures so through that i ended up being exposed to artists like dr dre who was releasing material quite a lot of the time um, and I really enjoyed that as well. And it was like Sean Paul and, and Snoop Dogg and 50 right. Cent were all huge. And I'd go hang out with my friends and that's what they listened to. And then I would listen to the metal and I kind of developed a love for the the sort of the ins and outs of both sides of it. Um, and then I, that led me down. I sort of had to backtrack down through the influences of hip hop into funk and then landed on um, uh, Parliament and Funkadelic and just kind of... <sighs> It almost went full circle in terms of the the proggy yeah. um, sort of rock and roll and the attitude and yeah I thought it was kind of interesting they stem from the same sort of place years and years and years ago. Um, that's, yeah, that, that's <laughs> great. I, I, I like the sound of that, and um, I suppose I've I've been intrigued how you know the sort of the, like my son's generation, daughter's generation, the oldest. Rebecca, she's very much into Linkin Park at the time. I remember that CD being on yeah. constantly. And it was that, that was kind of that shift, wasn't it, where all of a sudden kids in England, doesn't matter what where they grew up, so it doesn't matter what their demographic was, um, where they grew up, but they started getting into hip-hop to rap to all sorts of different... And, and it was opened up that way. Yeah, I, I think it was a real gateway um, new metal for all its flaws uh yeah. provided so many positives and um i know that like people like to uh sort of make like make light of new metal and like some of the artists of bands and music and it's not aged so well but it you can't deny the impact that it had in terms of um the artists that i was listening to when i sort of hit my early 20s which were directly affected by like Corn and Linkin yeah. Park and and so on. So, um, and we kind of have this resurgence of like a more modern metal, which I think is is more alive and well than ever, really. Yeah, um, yeah. And to what you're saying there, it rings rings true. And you know, some of the bands from that '80s new wave of heavy heavy British rock that that hasn't aged so well. Some of it, some some still stands up, of course. On there. Yeah, yeah. Darren, did you ever get into any of that? To an extent, um, I had a friend who was big into that sort of thing, like, certainly into the hip-hop side of things, like you mentioned Dr. Dre a minute ago. Yeah. Um, he was very into that. Oh, what's, with Jeff, it doesn't work very well on the podcast, but David's holding something up for us. Oh, what was that, David? So there's, a, there's an absolutely great uh, DVD or film, I should say. Um, it's called Metal, A Headbanger's Journey. Uh, and it's a guy who's uh, 
when he did this 30 year old anthropologist and he took his anthropology and used that approach methodology to then mine the the, the, the various rabbit holes of the different areas subgenres of, of heavy metal just fantastic so if you're looking for something to listen to if you or watch if you've not seen it i'll send you the details afterwards that's not a dvd i expected in your collection though, that. <laughs> i would say i've got an open mind and rebecca uh, introduced me to it so excellent i, I took oh, that yeah listen to I'll what your kids say I'll halfway through Straight Out of Compton today as well, going back to Dr. Dre. Oh, that's a brilliant film. Yeah, never seen it before, so I'm, I'm halfway through. So in about 45 minutes' time, I'll watch the second hour. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully we can squeeze this in the intermission. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. Is it intermission? That's great. Ice creams? <laughs> <laughs> We've actually just popped some in the freezer. Um, huh? Some homemade ice pops. Ideal. Sounds good. Alcohol in them? No, don't answer. <laughs> <laughs> So you, you talk about all those the different music that you kind of or that you were listening to as as you evolved, uh, as you grew yeah. up, um, and sort of these days, what would you be playing now? Is it, it's, it's still that broad mix. I don't know if you settled on particular subgenres or genres or, or bands. I think it's kind of it, it's more a mood based listening yeah. now for me. I think um, I love everything that like in my collection, but sometimes i'm just not in the right mood for yeah. a particular artist and i'll go months and um, maybe even years without listening to them i think it's important to do that as well so, as a practice to not burn out on your favorite artists because um i've done that in the past and it's been you know years and years before i even want to listen to bohemian rhapsody ever again um <laughs> sometimes yeah. they just get played to death you know um so at the moment, I think the most common thing I'm listening to is lo-fi hip-hop, which you might oh. be familiar with. There's um, channels streaming it on YouTube and Spotify. And I think the reason for that is because uh, I'm a big fan of um, YouTube for my entertainment. Like, I follow a lot of YouTubers, and um, I, I feel like the content's a lot more relatable than anything that I would get on television, for instance. And yeah. uh, You feel like you're part of like more of a community yes and i think a lot of them just to avoid um copyright strikes or having to sort of file royalties or anything will use royalty free music which yeah. um lo-fi hip-hop kind of lends its hand to because one one thing i've noticed is a lot of the tracks are super short there it is more of an idea that's been um fleshed out for a minute yeah you know, or maybe two minutes at most um rather than an entire song and okay I, I find it like quite relaxing and it, they just kind of like they kind of meld together a little bit um it's difficult to tell when one idea ends and another one starts unless you're looking at like the track list um and i think that it just sits naturally in the background i i, I quite like it it's relaxing when i'm when i'm doing stuff and i'll listen to it and on my walks and stuff but um it, aside from that, I have a playlist that I've been growing uh, on Spotify. I think it's public if anyone wants to okay. find it and listen to it. It's, oh. uh, it's currently at 28 hours in length. Um, <laughs> and it all stemmed from a friend of ours through a, I think it was a New Year's Eve party. And I arrived and was mortified to find there was no atmosphere. We were late. Um, and there was no music playing. 
and people were just kind of sat around like in little groups and I was like oh my, it's like a school disco without without any music and I was just I felt so uncomfortable I think over the years I've, I've noticed that sitting in a, a like a pub or a bar without any kind of ambience really like stifles me um I prefer to have some low-level music somewhere so I, I grabbed a speaker and just started throwing in some of my favorite songs and I, it was an interesting challenge almost because I wanted to I didn't really know everyone in the room and I didn't want to just blast loads of heavy yeah. metal at people <laughs> yeah so I was trying to keep it like light and party tunes right. so I was trying to find some of my favorite artists and pick out the most sort of easy listening party songs to string together so I, I called the playlist party smash just on the fly because i had to create something i started with jump by van halen oh, and class. i just got it on the speaker and i was basically racing the songs to try and add enough like more songs before that yeah. one ended so you could keep it going um and then people started coming over to me at the party and started saying oh could you add this song by fleetwood mac and <laughs> we have this one and it, it worked really well it just started to grow and grow and grow and then um a couple of weeks later, I noticed on Spotify that I had subscribers to it, like not many, but a handful. But it was people that were at the party wow. who, like, they'd taken it away. Some of them worked in pubs and bars and stuff, and they just put it on in their places of work. And, and people were like, this is this is brilliant. You know, it was just kind of there were no sort of really long, deep tracks, no slow stuff. It was all just light and airy. And um, I've just been adding stuff to it over brilliant. the years. Then I, I think it's a lot of fun, and it's my go-to, really. Sorry. Uh, Darren, you need to check that out for your DJ job. Yeah, I'm a good look. Yeah, yeah it. I mean, it's it's evolved a lot over the years where what I'm listening to, I think, <laughs> changes. Um, so I started off with, again, like loads of Van Halen, and then I added some like some 41, right. and then loads of Steely Dan, uh, Steeler's Wheel, even. Um, so there's a little bit of Pink Floyd in there, but of course it's hard yeah. to pick out some sort of lively party tracks in there, I That's guess. Good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It may not have worked if you went straight into the Slipknot, really. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think that would have been maybe too much for someone. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that sounds brilliant. Oh, we'll have to get a link to your Spotify playlist then, I think. Yeah, I should have thought to send it over. Yeah, I'll, I'll send it over. Right. I'll, I'll stick it in the uh, show notes. <laughs> yeah. So then how did you get into playing an instrument? You talked about your singing and your acting. Yeah. So how did you get into instruments and what did you start with? So um, I don't think it really counts, but when I was really little, there was a recorder involved. <laughs> we, we all did that, wasn't, didn't we? Yeah, uh, I wasn't very good at it. I tried my hand at uh, acoustic guitar. Um, it wasn't as rock and roll as I expected it to be, but I was... <laughs> was maybe seven or eight years old so it's to be expected um but it was a simple um it was a problem solving issue uh, i had a band in high school um and we, we got a lot of gigs around sort of gloucester cheltenham stroud and the surrounding villages and we just did covers of our favorite songs we'd cover like um free leonard skinnard bit of pink floyd some queen you know oh. those sorts of things and go into pubs and entertain people um but one thing was we were four members and our lead guitarist was incredible at guitar. Even like now, thinking back on it, for his age, he, he shouldn't have been that good. <laughs> I, I wondered if it was just because I was young and I thought he's brilliant. But no, no, he, he, would, he, would, he would play um, like Joe Satriani and Steve Vai tracks. What? 
Um, I remember him playing, um, what's that, uh, Surfing with so, the Alien, yeah. me, and I, I was just, it blew my mind. Um, but he was the only guitarist in the band. So when he was off, like, uh, we did a cover of Comfortably Numb, which I, I dread to think of, you know, <laughs> four 16-year-old boys doing Comfortably Numb in your local pub anymore. But, um, of course, as soon as he goes off to do the epic solo at the end, there's nothing really carrying the song underneath. Uh. And I, of course, I was stood there with nothing to occupy myself for a couple of minutes. So we quickly realized that I could play a guitar. He could. He was like, I'll show you the chords. Um, you just need to play them. And <coughs> like, uh, you know, that, uh, the bit at the end of um, Queen live at Wembley in 86, where they bring out a guitar for Freddie to play yes. uh, Crazy Little Thing Called Love. And it just looks so alien to him. It does, doesn't it? <laughs> But he plays it, but it, it just looks not right for yeah. him. Um, and I think that's how I how I was. Uh, it was a purely utilitarian use. Uh, I played the chords that I needed to when I needed to. And I didn't understand any of it, which was um, quite key to uh, certain changes that I saw in the future, I think. Right. Because I, I enjoyed it. Um, I had some lessons, but... Um, it, I wasn't really getting out of it what I wanted, right. and I, I knew that I was a far stronger vocalist than I was instrumentalist. So um, I moved off to Bristol to study music, and um, I went to the Bristol Institute of Modern Music, or BIM as it's known. And it, I think they've changed the courses since, but when I joined, you would pick a vocation and kind of stick with it. Yeah. Um, so I auditioned for both uh, vocalist and guitarist, <coughs> and I was accepted into both, but they kind of like, we agreed that I would have a much better time focusing on my stronger instrument. So I went as a vocalist. Um, um, that's where I met the rest of the band from Heaven Asunder. We were all studying our vocations. Um, and the reason I got the gig as the guitarist uh, is it's kind of peculiar because they there were only three male vocalists in my year. Um, I mean, the vocal class was maybe, I think it was about 12 people at most. Um, so it was definitely, there were more female vocalists than male. And so when, when they were looking around for a heavy metal singer, they wanted someone who was going to be able to scream and be, you know, really aggressive vocals, like it, akin to the, the modern bands we listened to. Um, and really there was only two of us that were even interested in that music. There was me and the, the boy, Matt, who actually became the singer, but um, I happened to live next door to basically everyone else who was in the band by the end of the year. Um, mm -hmm. Obviously, unbeknownst to us, they were, we were just next door neighbours, and they asked me if I was interested. But I, I've never been very confident with sort of aggressive vocals. Mm -hmm. I've, uh, I've always been more melodic. Um, so I, I suggested the other lad in my course, so he got the gig. Um, and then we were just hanging out, having beers, um, and I was noodling around with some songs that I was writing. And the uh, Lewis, the guitarist, just came over to me. and was like, "I didn't know you played guitar. You never, you never mentioned that." And I was like, "Oh yeah, I'm not very good." But he was like, "Well, could you play this song or that song?" And I was like, "Maybe if I learnt it." Um, but what I hadn't considered was he was like, "We really want a guitarist who can do backing vocals, but none of the guitarists in our year can sing. None, like none of them." And he was getting really frustrated. We had like they had loads of people in who said they could, and then they they would kind of mm. choke. 
And I was like, oh, yeah, I'd be much better at playing chords than singing than I would be doing any solos or screaming or anything. And he was like, okay, that, that's, it just sound, it felt like it was a fit. found my place, yeah, in a way. Um, and it, because I was so terrible at guitar, he had to basically teach me um, all the riffs, which when he was writing them with me, that, that made sense. Um, it only became difficult when we did covers and stuff where I, I'd actually need a lot of help. I couldn't be there for the writing process. Um, but yeah, I, I like we've always joked about how, um, like affectionately, I'm a terrible guitarist, uh, oh. and I think there's it, it's come across. I think in um, our sort of stage persona and interviews we've had together, um, I always try to cover up my lack of ability by being as flamboyant as possible on stage. <laughs> <laughs> I figured if I could do like high kicks and spin my guitar around, then no one would even question my ability to play it. <laughs> um, I'm sure you're selling yourself short there, Ali. <laughs> I, I definitely, I got better over the years just through exposure, but um, uh, I was never as good as my uh, my peers, I don't think. It's made no, me... just been re- Sorry, David, I've just been reading about uh, the Manic Street Preachers. And actually, Richie from the Manix said exactly the same, very similar thing. He always felt he was, yeah, not good enough to be in the band and that sort of thing, but clearly he was, you know. <laughs> yeah, definitely. They've had their legacy. Yeah. And I was going to say, it reminds me a bit about Dream Theatre, where you had uh, Mike Portnoy, John Petrucci, and John Mayon, who were all at Juilliard, a similar setup yeah. to yourselves. Then you get a core mm-hmm. of a band that's still going. How many years later? 20, 30 years later? Uh, yeah, I mean, I thought you meant us then. I was like, oh God, has it been that long? <laughs> 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 no, no. <laughs> no, one day though, it's, I mean, 10 years has flown by. Uh, wow. we, we all met um, October 29, uh, 2009. So, yeah, it's been just over 10 years. We've all been friends now. Wow. And so, how, so do, you... how do you describe How do you describe your sound? Are you metalcore or are you a different kind of genre? Um, I really should have asked beforehand, but uh, what what are your rules on sort of? Uh, you can sw- you can swear. Language? You can swear. I'll just put yeah, an E. Oh, brilliant. Um, our our bio, our press release, just starts with British fucking metal. That's that is what we sound I, like. Nice. Um, nice. I think if you were to if you were to boil it down, then it would be metalcore. Uh, we've we've all taken from heavy metal and hardcore influences. Mm. Uh, if the if you I didn't realise what that was for years, even though I was in a metalcore band. But um, there's an album that I cannot recommend enough. Here we go. It's a uh, from Suicidal Tendencies. That it, it it is the crossroads between heavy metal and hardcore. Uh, when I listened to it, I got it. It, it just everything falls in place. Uh, it's called How Will I Laugh Tomorrow When I Can't Even Smile Today. And I, I recommend giving it a lift, listen because they really take the the hardcore punk aspects and then they put the like thrash metal guitars behind it and it, it, it's born on that album. And I think it's rare that you can attribute a crossover, like a whole new subgenre coming from a specific album. There's, there's big famous examples, but I don't hear that one talked about enough. Um, I think it's really important. And who are they, but, who are they again? Um, suicidal Tendencies. Yeah, nice. Always like a recommendation. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I I think it stood up quite well. Um, but I mean, it, there's probably better examples out there. But that was kind of 
um, certainly we agreed as a band that was where the the crossover happened between like bands like Anthrax being huge and then bringing in like Black Flag and Minor um, Threat and just kind of mushing it together. That was, I think, masterfully done on that record for sure. Superb. Um, what was I going to ask just then as well? Oh, I was just going to say, I was, um, I've listened to your music, some of your music this morning, Absolutely. and I was chatting to a friend of mine online because we're still in COVID-19 time at the moment. Yeah. So, um, and he said, he kind of said that it gave him a feel, your music of sort of Trivium, Kill Switch Engage, that kind of vibe. Yeah. Um, is, it, is that fair to say? Is that influences of yours? Or? That's definitely fair to say. Um, as members, as individuals, we all had our own distinct influences. But the the common themes, the ones that we could really agree on, uh, were Trivium, um, Avenged Sevenfold was a big yeah, one. Yeah, right. Uh, and Kills Which Engaged as well. Yeah. Uh, inherently, we, we were constantly compared to those three bands, but then we never saw it as a negative because those three bands were, first of all, all American, and they were all enormous. Um, like Avenged Sevenfold particularly were doing stadiums by the time we were out gigging clubs so we, we never saw that as a detractor but um we definitely took from their style and i think a lot of that has to do with our relationship as friends because um we would get together and you know have drinks and just watch live dvds of particularly kill switch and avenged um and both both those two had documentaries on their live dvds and it would be we would watch maybe far too commonly we would sort of get together i mean we, we lived together for like six years um mm. in, in various different flats and it would just be you know if ever we felt uninspired or just kind of under the cosh we would stick on the kill switch documentary and it, i really love it because it was filmed before they were enormous it was uh, filmed just just before they broke. I don't know how or why they were filmed then, but it was perfect timing because they're all just a bunch of sort of goofballs in their 20s, yeah. um, being friends and playing shows, and they're touring around, and they're like introducing the um, camera crew to their friends' bands, who then turn out to be enormous bands as well. Like mm -hmm. uh, Shadows Fall is on there, uh, Lamb of God is on there, right. and it's just this amazing time period that was just caught just at the right time and it's always just been so inspiring to watch it and it's got live clips interspersed and you, you hear about their motivations and how they all met as friends and I think that for us was really relatable to have those idols to look up to um, and we always put the friendship before the music like it really our live shows were about us having fun and people enjoying watching it um, like I think the music itself probably sounds more serious than we or our outlook was as people um i think you to get the full experience of our creations would be to watch it live and see how we performed it rather than like it, it's nice that it's people are able to access it on you know a digital yeah. media for instance but um i i think the the live presence the atmosphere that we had at our shows was far more um, like a party than a concert. Just so everyone can enjoy themselves. Yeah, I mean, we, we would love to sort of get down out in the crowd, throw beers at people, um, 
I remember <laughs> Matt, our singer, walking out. Uh, we weren't even like the headlining act at the show. Uh, I think we were opening for someone, and always our game plan was like, let's let's make the show about us. Not not in a selfish way, but let's try and let's be the band that people remember tonight. And we walk out, and it's just silence, like no walk-on music or anything. Everyone's just had their arms folded, and Matt grabs a bike, and he's like, we are having a Sunday from Bristol. We're going to kick your fucking dicks off. And then we just pass in. <laughs> <laughs> I, I did not hear it coming. I stood there laughing my ass on the song. It just, yeah, it was kind of, we, we always play these like, little pranks on each other to try and sort of just get a reaction, that, that sort of thing. That's brilliant. Brilliant. I've got a small confession. Is um, I, I took I took my daughter um, with a common friend of ours with Mark. We went to see Heaven and Hell. Who, oh, amazing! Uh, and they were supported by Lamb of God. Oh, I think I, I think I lasted a minute, <laughs> 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 and and then then I exited. I'm not sure how long Mark lasted, but I remember at the end just seeing sort of the. Uh, the carnage people coming out with those blood torn shirts, everything. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Lamb of God have some gnarly pits. I've seen them only a handful of times because they don't tour the UK as much as I would like them to. Um, but are you familiar with the um, incarceration story with their singer uh, no. a few years ago? No. Um, really, really interesting. There's a He wrote a book about it himself while in prison. I would recommend it. It's called oh. Darkest Days. His name's uh, D. Randall Blythe. Um, it's David, but yeah, he goes by D. Randall Blythe. Uh, or Randy. Um, but to summarise it, uh, while on tour, he got arrested in Prague. Um, and he was a raging alcoholic for years and barely remembered oh. anything from touring. And he was arrested and charged with murder. Um, and the story was that someone died at one of their shows the last time they were in Prague on tour. Uh, I know, sorry, I think they charged with manslaughter. And there was supposedly footage of people invading the stage and him throwing them off. And one of the kids that he threw off sort of banged their head on the floor and died. And they were trying to charge him. And um, like without, I don't want to spoil it, but he he was uh, found innocent. Right. But... What, what makes the book so gripping is he has genuinely no idea if he's responsible because he doesn't remember because of his alcoholism. Mm. So it's this discovery um, for him. Uh, he, he spent two years in prison, I think, while waiting for the verdict. And it was in, um, I think, the pronunciation's Pankratz in, in Prague. Mm. And he wrote the book while there. And it's kind of harrowing because he feels the guilt of this crime and he's not sure if he's guilty or not so um it's definitely definitely worth a read like the the self-exploration that he goes through and on the outside you've got people like ozzy and sharon osborne who were raising awareness to try and get him like right. get his trial done and get him freed um and then he came out released the book rejoined the band and i i, I was so happy when he came out and we like it, it turned out like the family, I think it come forward and the, like someone had still died, but it was no relation to, to the, the band directly. Um, but it's just harrowing that he, he went through that whole. Sort of course. Of, no, nothing uh, prepares you for that. that. No, I mean, he, he said it like in the start of the book, he literally gets off the plane in Prague from Virginia and 
that he, he they had a couple of days before the show started and he was looking forward to go around photographing the city because it is beautiful i've been to prague mm-hmm. um, and it's rare on their tours that they get a couple of days to themselves and before he even got through depart- uh, arrivals he was arrested uh basically immigration mm-hmm. and they had to cancel the the whole tour and yeah it's wow it's a real head spinner really is is. totally totally just sort of follow up on something you're talking about when you came on and the crowd were quiet for you what what would you prefer to do would you prefer to um headline uh a gig in a smaller venue or be a supporting band but in a bigger venue supporting band every single time yeah um yeah like we we always love doing headline shows but there's no, nothing as fun as absolutely nailing a support set, especially if you're like the main support, second to last band yeah. on for the night. You go out and absolutely kill it, and then you get to first of all enjoy the the headliner, but you could just go grab some beers and kind of bask in your achievement with yeah. your your friends and the crowd. And yeah. there's some real energy when you're sort of manning the merch desk and people are running over and they want to buy your t-shirts and they want to chat to you and they want photos and stuff. And it's something that, um, because of sort of curfew times, at least in the UK, if you're a headlining act, you kind of have to condense that and it becomes business very quickly. There's, there's no, um, you know, there's no anticipation for the next band. People are kind of filing out and the, the venue owner wants you to pack up and go as soon as possible. And I think that could be that could really detract from it. And also, like, by the t- if you're finishing at eleven o'clock at night, by that point, most people have had enough to drink and need to go home anyway. Yeah. Um, but if you're finishing, you know, your set at sort of up to nine o'clock, nine thirty, maybe even ten o'clock, and then you can have a beer and enjoy just being out with all those people. It, it's it's kind of a, it's just a wonderful yeah. feeling just being part of that community. I think I think it's fantastic to see them do it. Um, Parkway Drive. I've uh, I've got friends that are huge, huge fans of them, and um, they've got that kind of home brew story as well. Like I know they're named after the street where they used to band practice, for instance. They're all mates, and I'm like more kudos to them. I, I think they're all uh, from Australia. If that, I think that's right. Yeah. Um, which uh, the Australian music scene is far harder to crack than the UK or or the USA. Um, it, I mean, it's just so spread out and yeah. any time you want to go out the country for a gig you, you can't just pop over to wales for instance um you can't launch at all that easily so i mean they've really surmounted some huge obstacles and i think they should be so proud of themselves i mean i'm, I'm not a fan of every artist in the subgenre and, no. and everyone that's made it but i think there's they are some key examples and i think they give hope to you know bands of our level you, you can see it, the the sort of logical steps between your first band practice, your first club gig, then you know your first tour, and and it, you can see how it grows. It's not like um, like I like compare it to the sort of Simon Cowell program of you know you do a competition, you get your record deal, and you kind of fast track to the end game. But mm-hmm. that really I think hamstrings you because I mean there's a few artists that have made a, a lot out of it um but the vast majority of them they get there they've not been prepared for that moment in the spotlight and it's over so quickly um at least 
sort of grinding your way up and you get that community you get to be friends with other bands and you can help each other out and i think those are some of the the best values that i've taken from it and um against what anyone else says there's so many soft skills that are transferable in in doing that you, you learn to meet people and and network with people and you know you will arrange your own shows with your friends band two cities away you know and it's life lessons that you learn by doing that so fair play to them they've, they've really made it that's brilliant and it's yeah. also it's also about dealing with learning to how sorry learning how to deal with adversity oh yeah mm. there's a ton of that you know <laughs> absolutely yeah is, is there, are there any stories uh oh god what's what's uh <laughs> just putting on the spot there podcasts <laughs> <laughs> okay um i mean yeah because we, we're all friends we live together there were ups and downs we had to deal with you know being on tour falling out with one another and being stuck in the rest in the back of a van for another week um for having you know no place to stay um really struggling for food and beer and venues you arrive at aren't keeping up with your requests. Like we put out like a really simple rider for um, our last tour. And yeah, it was just like, we want some booze. We want some bottles of water. We want some sandwiches and crisps. That's yeah. like, that'll do us. Um, and then there were places just like, you know, I've, I've got you some cans of tango and that's it. And it was like, Oh, okay, great. Well, what are we going to do? Um, we had a venue owner try to throw us out of their venue because we went round to the local Tesco and bought our own beers and snacks because they just outright hadn't done us a rider. Right. Um, and the, the guy was like, well, you you can't just bring beers in here. And we were like, why not? You, you've not provided any. So he was like, well, you can buy some. And we were like, well, we'll sit in the van then. It's fine. <laughs> That's mad. And it's just like, I think people will try and get away with, you know, whatever. And sometimes you have to stand your ground. And I think that's why um, one of the key things we learned after doing that for a while was you, you need a manager, you need someone dedicated to deal with that flack for you because yeah. it's so draining to, first of all, have to sort of hack it out with the, the venue owners and all of the, the rigmarole of just getting the, the event to go ahead. And then you've got to get on stage and carry it. And then you've got to deal with, you know, all the meet and greets and the, the merch and everything afterwards. You pack up, you leave at one in the morning and then you've got to be, I mean, there was one night we went from, uh, well, the last three days of the tour was Glasgow, then Bolton, then Plymouth, uh, one day after the other. And it was just, we were just cool. driving through the night. And yeah. that was, you know, it was really eye opening then to think, yeah, we should pay someone to do all this for us, to be honest. It's, yeah. I can't recommend it enough. They're, they're worth their weight in gold if you can get a good one. Oh, cool. I'm going to rock and roll, is it? Really? No. Well, <laughs> I don't mind it, but uh, <laughs> when you've been locked in a smelly van for like hours on end and you just want a glass of water, it's, yeah. Yeah, it's a yeah. bit sticky. <laughs> I, I don't know about you, Darren, but I remember going to one gig yeah. with, with uh, Mark again. Um, I think it was in Cardiff, but just on the outskirts, and they were performing in what, what I'd probably describe as a, a new type of cinema, so within uh, Parade of Shops. And whilst we were queuing up to get in, saw one of the band members actually walk past us with a couple of carrier bags. <laughs> and then and then we go and we sort, and then we go and take our seats and 
and they're going to hear some noise behind us. And so what transpires is there clearly wasn't a changing room or anything like that because it was a cinema. They were up where the projectionist would be, getting ready. Yeah. You could hear the, the bottles clinking away up there and, get, and getting ready for it. Yeah. <laughs> in fact, there's a venue uh, like that um, in Bristol. It's it's beloved in Bristol. Um, it's called Thecla. You may be aware of it oh, already. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's a boat. And I played that venue tens of thousands of times. Like when I when we were in university, that was they had a partnership with that venue to let us do live lessons. So um, I think like what we one term we'd be in the live room at the university doing live lessons, and then um, we the next term or next half of the term we'd go over to Thekla and do it on a proper stage. And it was the most useful skills that you don't think about needing. Like okay, we're going to teach all the singers how to set up a drum kit because you never know when you're going to need to know. Yeah. And that's yeah. saved my ass a couple of times. If I'm <laughs> um, it's like our drummer stuck in traffic and we've got the kit. So, okay, we can get it set up. Um, but Thekla, they've got a tiny, tiny, tiny room behind the stage because it's all, they're trying to get the max capacity, I guess, for mm. the, the, the boat. Um, so you get this tiny room and when you've got, uh, like we played some showcases there where there's like 50 bands on, everyone gets one song and you just got masses of gear backstage and people falling over mm. each other and they're like, only the next band on is allowed in the backstage area. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah. take all your guitars with you. Um, and it's, it's amazing how they make it work. Um, we played there with a band called 36 Crazy Fists who um, incidentally is, is, they're one of our idols. I think that was the most magnificent show to be able to play with them. And they were blown away. They're, they're from um, Anchorage in Alaska. And wow. they, I don't think, you know, they probably didn't read into it because they were doing like legit world tours. And they arrived and we stood outside with our gear and the, like the tour bus is there. And they're like, holy shit, it's a boat. <laughs> <laughs> and then, like, all night their singer was like, I can't believe I'm playing a fucking show on a boat. This is, this is amazing. <laughs> Oh, uh, they've been brilliant. back a few times, but they, they've not played Thekla since. But I think they miss it, to be honest. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I was supposed to have been there last week for a gig, actually. But uh, obviously, with COVID-19, everyone's cancelled at the moment. But yeah. the band called the Slow Readers Club. I don't know if you're aware of them. No, I'm afraid not. Uh, fairly, um, they're big up north, big around Manchester at the moment. But their, um, their new album's actually just gone into the top 20, I think. So, oh, wow. Fair play. Yeah, they're up and coming. Yeah. Yeah. It's been rescheduled. I've just got to wait till November or something. Yeah, it'll be worth nice, it. Venue. Nice venue. Mm, good. Definitely. Yeah. So, Ali, you mentioned the six-letter word, cowl. Is that six letters? Cow. Simon Cowl. Oh, yes. How? <laughs> I'll, I'll put some change in a jar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, look, the, the music industry has obviously changed. It's more about technology than Simon Cowl himself, but... How do you make it? How do you survive as a band these days? So that you've got a full-time job, but you do you do your band duties, and I'm sure that's where you want to be. But it's not like the old days of getting a deal, getting some money up front, and um, <laughs> and spending whatever uh, three three months in France somewhere in a castle. How how do you make it work? Uh, I wish I knew, to be honest, David. Right. <laughs> um, I think. I've got some tidbits of advice, I think. Um, I mean, 
I'm not speaking to you as a multi-platinum selling artist, but I've had lots of fun doing it and we've made it sustainable. Um, I think that's the most you could hope for. My, my dream would be to sustain myself solely on music creation, but that's such a huge feat to achieve. Um, and you kind of have to go into it knowing what the stakes are. And I knew that that was very unlikely, which is why I, you know, studied music so I, I could get a degree and I could go into uh, a better job than I would have done otherwise. And now I have the security that I do have. Um, the trade-off really is time. Now, it, to ensure that security, I need to dedicate time to a day job and um, you know, developing my skills as a person. So I think we've all felt that throughout the band, for instance. Um, there's less time for us to go and rehearse and do gigs and also the time that we do have is more precious you, yeah. you don't want to you know waste it having a an off night in the rehearsal space when you could have been you know at home with your loved ones and yeah. um just popping your feet up and it, it really makes you evaluate your time but I, I would say for anyone that wants to try it um wants to try and make it in the industry um you need to be sincere um, and by that I mean what we found worked for us was playing the music that we wanted to hear yeah. um, rather than trying to pander to a particular thing that was popular because now it, we've got the hindsight to see that you know some of those bands aren't as relevant now as they were um, others have you know they've kept their relevance but they've had to adapt and I think that's really a key skill you look at artists like David Bowie who just oh had a metamorphosis throughout yeah. the years and that's yeah. how we managed to maintain it whereas um that's that's not going to be achievable for everyone so we kind of agreed on the the most common themes that we liked about the music that we liked and um, we decided to sort of do a mixing pot of those because there weren't enough bands doing it and we wanted to hear it and then lo and behold other people heard it and thought oh that's what i wanted to listen to as well so it, it grew organically then because, and it, it, it was much easier because we were just being ourselves rather than, you know, um, trying to go by a, a formula or anything. Um, so I think that really helped take the strain off it for us. It, it was natural. It was just, you know, the, the riffs and the melodies and the, the, um, the message that we wanted to convey and it all came together well. Um, I think, Maybe that's naive now, but um, more recently I heard, um, going back to the, like the industry, um, I think it was in a YouTube video, it was a really interesting sentiment, I thought. Um, this person had said that people are more interested now in Tombra than anything else. And I think it's because of the, the massive leaps forward in technology that we've seen, sort of people using Pro Tools and Logic and even GarageBand like comes a standard on any Mac now. Yeah. So anyone's got access to it. Whereas you know, 20, 30 years ago, it was it, it existed. You, you had the bare bones of MIDI, but you, you couldn't just fire up your Mac and, and key in a whole song. Yeah. And so now that that area of music's becoming so refined that that the average listener can tell the difference between a cheap sample and mm like a great sounding, like maybe a live recording of something. And I thought it was interesting that now that the, the general understanding has shifted so that you can't get by on just, you know, your little Casio. You, you need to yeah. think about, do these sounds work together even? It's, it's a whole new depth 
to it, which I think is fascinating. And, and tying that together with what you're saying about being sincere or true to yourselves, I think the only way is, sorry, the most successful way for you as a band to stay together and you have a following clearly is to do what you enjoy because at least yeah. if you're not going to be cutting great big deals then you have fun when you're out on the stage oh yeah and like i wouldn't trade the the fun and the memories that we we had together for like uh you know a simon cowell record deal for instance like yeah. it's just not worth the trade-off because like the, the war stories that we have and all, all kind of like get togethers whenever we remember something ridiculous happening from eight years ago. Um, it's so worthwhile, even though, you know, we didn't become the next yeah. sort of, I don't know, Lincoln Park or whoever. Um, it, it doesn't mean that we didn't have fun. And I think that's something that people don't think about bands in general is, you know, you can have a band that didn't quite make it, but they had a, a blast along the way i'm sure um have you, have you seen the um the movie they made about anvil like i know they had a lot of hardship but they never got to where they wanted to be but then there's that cult following and people went and made a movie about their story because it's so compelling and it, it really it, it depends on how you measure success what what is your success because um if you if your success is selling millions of albums then yeah i mean we flopped but yeah. If if your success is uh, sort of believing in something and making it happen and sort of improving the lives of others, which I think yeah. is kind of what we were looking to do, then I, we we definitely achieved that, and it's yeah. such a nice thing to look back on. If there's any li any light at the end of the tunnel, um, I remember talking with a friend not ten years ago, but probably about seven or eight years ago, and he had a, a friend who's heavily involved in organising a lot of the big festivals around the country. And even then, yeah. they were beginning to run out of headline acts. Really? Yeah. Well, if you just think of the ages of the bands that, that are up there, you know, there's, there's a lot of them, the, the big headliners, even the eight, the bands yeah. in the 80s, you're talking about people in their early 60s to, to late 60s. Yeah. Um, so there's going to yeah. be a void, there's going to be a vacuum coming up soon that will need to be filled. Yeah, I think promoters should, or bookers maybe, should do more to counteract that because, um, like, my favorite festival to attend is Download Festival. Um, I've not gone every year, but I've gone, a, like, a number of times over the last 10 years. And I always check out the, the lineup. Um, and it's more often than not the same grand circle of bands. Um, yeah. And they kind of reshuffle them. And there's been a few different you know, um, interchanges where the, the one year they had Avenged Sevenfold headline, which obviously had to go and see. Yes. Um, but it was so refreshing and the crowd was so different. You know, there was that night there were like, there were just loads of excited kids seeing their favorite band who rarely ever comes to the UK because, you know, there's only like a couple of stadiums they would do. Or like um, Rammstein as well. They, oh. they did one UK date. They, they did download and, and then they announced one more and the, the internet broke. Um, and they, sh they should do more to promote that. Um, because, I mean, we've all seen Iron Maiden, we've seen Kiss, we've seen Def Leppard. I don't dislike them. I, I love all of those acts. But uh, I remember the last time we saw Iron Maiden was the Sunday night at download and 
it was the most miserable atmosphere. It had been raining all week. Like, tents had washed away. I wanted to go home. And we were just stood at the back of the field waiting for them to end. And it was like, I should be enjoying this. And they came out and they did an encore. And then eventually my friends convinced me that we should just go. Let's just get in the car and get a head start. And as we were walking back to the car, we could still hear the, the show going on. And we heard it end. And I realized... It was like, wait, they didn't they didn't play Run to the Hills. And uh, they were like, oh, no, they didn't. I was like, can you imagine if we just stood there, like desperate to hear Run to the Hills, and then they finished. And I was like, there must be some annoyed people in, in the crowd, for sure. Yeah. That's mean, that's one of their staples. Pardon? What did they end with? Um, I think like, they, they came back out and did Fear of the Dark and Hallowed Be Thy Name. I think. Okay. And then I think they may have ended it there. I, they yeah. certainly didn't play Run to the Hills, but I, I can't remember exactly what they ended on. But Big song to miss out. Yeah. Oh. yeah. Absolutely. And I couldn't think of any reason to because Brucey was on top form. He was yeah. uh, no, smashing out all the other tracks. So I don't think it was a technical reason, let's say. Maybe it was a, a creative choice, which is fine. Sometimes yeah. you've got to you know, refresh those songs. But I think for... You know the the ticket price for download, uh, even just a day ticket. Someone went to go see those acts. I mean, Maiden don't really do that many UK tours that I'm aware of. It's no. you know you want to catch them at a festival. So I I did actually see them. I saw Iron Maiden in 2008, supported by Avenged Sevenfold. Amazing! At what a great lineup at Twickenham. We we oh, were yeah. we were right at the back with with uh, Rebecca. We were right at the back. But you know what? It Fantastic. was great. It was great fun. And Darren, they did do Run to the Hills. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I saw them. I saw them a few years after that in Cardiff, and they did that as well. <laughs> I have seen them do it, I'm sure. Um, one, one thing I've heard about that Twickenham show is um, supposedly Bruce Dickinson travelled there by bus because oh, he was, yeah. I think it was uh, commutable for him. So he just hopped on the local bus and he was meeting and greeting fans on their way to the show. and. I saw that so, so nice of him. He's such a nice man. He is, isn't he? There, there was yeah. a lovely part um, when Event Sevenfold were on on uh, on stage, and it was a hot day. It was one of those where they had sort of water all around the outside uh, on the edges of what would be the the plane service. Um, but you yeah. could see it was getting very hot, and all of a sudden, the uh, the singer, I forget his name, for Event Sevenfold, M Shadows. Shadows. He he goes, hold on, everyone, hold on, everyone. And he said, security, and he pointed into the middle of the crowd, almost directly in front of him, but about 25, 30 people deep. And he said, there's some people who are struggling down there. Can we just clear a space? We let security come in and help oh. them out. Come on, people. Yeah. We're all in this together. And they did that. And there was uh, there was a, that moment that you don't always get and you don't always feel in a, yeah. in a kick. Um, but that's that love of the crowd. You know, the, the, the crowd are, they are their people. Yeah, and I think... When, when you're on stage, particularly uh, at that level, although, you know, you've got your work out, you, you're not short of things to be keeping on top of. I think also you have a, a responsibility, more, more of a duty of care duty of to keep an eye out for that sort of thing. And there are there's clips on the Internet of various artists, you know, stopping the crowd and trying to help someone out or, or calling out a fight or something. And I think it's good to do that, to remind. I think it also reminds the crowd that, 
they are real, they're there, they're engaging. Yeah. Um, I remember one of like, the most mind-blowing experiences for me, the first time I went to download, which was 2010, we were coming into the arena, and it's the first time I'd ever seen the stage in real life. I've watched the highlights <laughs> and stuff on telly, and Miles Kennedy and Slash were on stage, and um, I remember seeing Slash, and I was just like awestruck <laughs> from like, a mile away just thinking like holy shit he is real <laughs> i was like that's actually him isn't it like does he have eyes like, he, no <laughs> all right <laughs> but it, it was yeah it blew my mind just looking at them in the flesh and then that whole festival just the huge eyes that came out um one of the one of the big bands um was stone temple pilots and just seen scott whalen on stage and like he was he was magnificent and it, it, it's just this huge disconnect between like realizing I'd never seen any of them in, in person really until then. Uh, and that was amazing to see them then and sort of interacting with the crowd. And I think for shadows to stop in the crowd, like hopefully you, you know, for the people that aren't actually yeah. in dire need of trouble, uh, of support that um, it, it kind of reinforces that they, they really are there and they, they can see you and, and your reaction means as much to them as their music does to you. And I, I can confirm that as <laughs> for being on stage, it really does mean the world. That's brilliant. Yeah. Um, we're, we're, we'll move on to the last section shortly, but before we do that, um, just want to ask if there's any shout outs you wanted to give or anything, or if any of your music that you want to give a plug, I appreciate in, uh, in the middle of coronavirus, that's maybe not so easy, unless you've been putting anything together between you, the five of you. <laughs> Um, no, we're not really putting anything together. Um, I think the only thing I would shout out uh, on the spot is uh, my good friend Matt Boyd. Um, he was the singer in Heaven Asunder, and he's been carving out a career as a professional wrestler for himself for the last couple of years. And I can tell you now, he's fantastic at it. Um, you can find him on Instagram and Twitter. At, uh, his name's Elijah, so it's at Elijah. Um, so I, I can't recommend it enough. His following the storylines of his wrestling career on Instagram is so entertaining for me. Knowing him, sort of for the last ten years, I could see how how much he gets out of it. It's really really sweet. Um, in terms of music, I think we, we put out an album, no, an, an EP. Uh, God, it must be two years ago now. Um, and it's it's the what's it called? Oh my goodness, I should know this. I think it's self-titled, yeah. I think it might um, be. Oh no, sorry, it's Devour Decay. It's called. All oh, right. Um, and that was that was really tough putting that together. Um, but I would recommend um, anything from that. Really, cool. that was. I think we all agree the most uh, succinct summary of what we wanted to achieve. Um, we've got two EPs and an album out and I think that, that last EP was um, where we really hit the nail on the head for what sound and what kind of vibe we, we, we were trying to get down for years um, that's definitely our, our proudest achievement I think, I think Darren's got an update this morning so I'll have to tell him to get the EP as well yeah, <laughs> yeah. He had a list. He's done. I've ordered that. I've ordered that. Well, nice. I think we've got some spares knocking about. So uh, yeah, we can <laughs> post one out to you. Excellent. I'll let him know. <laughs> Yeah, it's a 
talk about Hollywood. Sunset Generation, they got all that stuff. Get that meditation on that FM station. Man, yeah, talk about some teeny bowels. We're now moving to the Hollywood 100 collection. The backstory here is a friend of ours, uh, he was on one of the earlier podcasts. He's building a vinyl collection up from scratch. So right. uh, interestingly, he's got a lot of, I think he's got most of the Queen stuff already. But now he's got a, a gaping chasm where he wants to be able to fill it with lots more new vinyl. And we're ask, right. asking each of our guests to recommend an album that they think everyone should have if they were going to have uh, a vinyl collection. Um, so I think specifically for vinyl, uh, the one that comes to mind is Wish You Were Here by Pink Floyd. Um, if no one said it already, I think because it's the only record I can think of where they've actually used the vinyl format in like as a storytelling device. Um, where they, The way they've split the A and B sides of um, the Shine On You Crazy Diamond and they've bookended it, I've always found fascinating because you as a listener, I think with any other vinyl record, that at least I could think of, it becomes a hassle to get up and flip it and then carry on with the journey. Whereas, I don't know, it, it feels like when you flip Wish You Were Here, that's part of the the, the storytelling. Um, the, the actually, you, you almost take part in a way, it becomes a little bit interactive. And then um, you get to see the rest of the, the record play out. And I, I've always found that it's almost transgressive in a way. Oh, sweet, that's mm. good. You've got right, sure. You've yeah. got that one, haven't you, Darren? Yeah, I have. Yeah, absolutely. I've got most of the verse, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, I've been trying to build them. I've got multiples of some of them, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. Super. Good choice. Thank you. <laughs> okay, I think yeah. that brings us to the end of uh, yeah. this, this podcast, Darren. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you very much. Good. So, uh, we'll, this, well, this one will be out on Spotify very shortly, won't it? So... Keep finding us on Spotify, look for our Facebook page and enjoy. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Ali, for your time. That was great. Ali, yeah. See you again. I love talking about myself. Thanks for having me. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah, much appreciated. Bye-bye. Take care. And the heat goes on.